there isn't that belief in the Enlightenment, the dominance of truth and freedom is not there as anywhere near as much. Now, I will say there is a very big split on gender lines in this younger generation. So male-female amongst that younger group on these woke questions, it can be as much as 50 points apart. So there's a big gender aspect to this. What, so the m- men are more... Uh, a lot less woke. Uh, young men are a lot less woke than young women. For the wrong to rule, the good must just stand idly by. Hello, happy Sunday. I've got cold, or maybe I've got Omnicron, Omnicon, whichever one it is. Anyway, uh, you know the culture wars, those things that apparently don't exist? Well, they do, as we know on this channel, and we like to talk about them. So I am very lucky to be joined by Eric Kaufman, author of two recent reports for the Policy Exchange on the Culture Wars. Uh, Eric, thank you for coming. How are you doing? Great to be here. Doing doing very well, thanks. Good. Um, I was looking through, I came across this because of a Twitter thread that I saw of you posting polling about kids and, uh, well, intergenerational attitudes towards um, cultural stuff. So can you tell me a bit about... Um, the reports themselves. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, the first thing to note is that, you know, you will get people, particularly on the left, who say this is a right-wing moral panic. Yeah, there may be the odd school, like the American School in London, that has this stuff, but really, we're not teaching this. Critical race theory is not being taught. Uh, Actually, what this survey, which is a representative draw from uh, 18 to 20-year-olds in this country, we asked them what they were taught at school. Turns out, uh, six in ten of them were taught concepts from critical race theory. So one of white privilege, systemic racism, or unconscious bias. And if we add a couple of gender concepts, patriarchy and the idea of many genders, it's up to 73%. Um, Not only that, it's actually rising as you go down the age range. So 18-year-olds, it's 78%. Whereas the sort of 20-year-olds who were in school three years ago, it's lower. It's like 65 or something. So it's still rising. And it's the majority. And so this is not something that's just a few isolated incidents. Yes, yeah, so people would just have you convinced, people would have you convinced it's an isolated incident, but it's yeah. not. It's getting worse. But it's not, I've not met any member of the public who likes any of this stuff. So where's the disparity there? Yeah, I, and indeed, I mean, you can see in our reports we polled the public, and it's something like 70% against most of these things and 30% in favor. Um, and so, yeah, the public's against this, but they're not aware of the extent to which, because even as a parent, I mean, I wasn't really aware of all the, the teaching materials that are used, and those things aren't necessarily released to parents anyway. So, not unless you e- ask for them. No, and even if you do ask for them, they might refuse you. They don't, they don't actually have to give them to you, which is something that needs changing. We are changing it. The Bad Law Project's changing that. We're, uh, we I, are getting around the GDPR issue that they're uh, trying to claim is a problem for them. So we have uh, children being indoctrinated in schools with the idea of critical race theory, which essentially is, um, you know, how does one break critical race theory down really easily, which is just racism to replace bad race, uh, good racism. Well, yeah, it's basically like any disparity uh, between racial groups on income can only be explained as a result of racism. And if you can't find the racist, then it must just be this loose amorphous structure which you can't see, you can't measure, you can't test, but, you know, trust me, it's there. It's systemic. Uh, it's, it's like the matrix. You know, if you're in it, it's affecting you, you just don't know it. Yeah. Uh, but there's no way of proving it. Uh, yeah, so this, this kind of zombie theory is, is really what's being pushed. Now, these concepts, of course, what some people will say is, well, well this is not actually critical race theory because it's not the high 
theorists like Derek Bell or, or Kimberly Crenshaw, but actually the reality is these concepts are derivative of the same theory, that, that there can be racism without actual racists is kind of the argument. Uh, yeah, it's sort of ghost hunting. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's bonkers. Yeah. But it's, um, to be cynical about it, the reason why it's getting younger and re younger and younger is because kids' minds are much easier to manipulate and they're, they're malleable, they're thinking, aren't they? So if you can get these Marxist ideas into their heads young, you can change the entire generation. But well, yeah. I mean, and I think they're getting a lot of it from social media and celebrities and all that stuff. Yeah, so that's why, the main... Why are celebrities into all of this stuff? Well, because it's the sort of... That's the highest value in the culture. It's something that's been building for... <coughs> since the 1960s. So it's ascendant in the culture. So they just want to be with what are the most highest prestige values uh, in the society. What, without thinking? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I think there's always... Celebrities and artists are meant to think. Yeah. They're meant to be the thing that holds the mirror up to nature and go, look at the world you live in. It's not, you know, this is where the lies are and all that sort of stuff. But actually, they're just, they are the culture. They're not countercultural at all, celebrities. Yeah. And these, ki these kids think that this is radical revolutionary stuff. It's just boring, monotonous indoctrination of children. Yeah, well, but they managed to sort of preserve this frame like we were back in the 1920s where the establishment is somehow conservative and nationalist and whatever, and were the, the true rebels. The reality, of course, as you know, is that the establishment are, in fact, the people with these, what I call cultural socialist or woke values. They dominate, and so, but people are kind of deluded into thinking they're fighting the establishment when they are the establishment. Like um, China, then. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, so, so it, is, it is remarkable how many have kind of fallen for this. It's all around this idea that, that these two moral foundations of being caring for the oppressed and also pushing for equality for the oppressed is is, is those values are dominant or, or equity. Well, equity in the sense of equal outcomes, right? which is really dangerous. Yeah, on a bureaucratic level, it's really dangerous because how do you create equity without making a lot of people without jobs other than to secure equity? Yeah, so, well, you need to use power and institutional power to crush dissent in order to ensure equity, right? So, so if you want, if people aren't naturally having equal outcomes by race, whether it be on the basketball court or in academia, well, you have to engineer it. Not on the basketball court. But, well, no, it is on the basketball court. It's 100% on the basketball court because, you know, you, as Ben Shapiro quite frequently points out, he mm. wouldn't have a chance in the NBA. Right. Where's his chance in the NBA? You know, it, um, so my theory, or what I... I've sort of gathered um, from reading, and you can tell me whether it's rubbish because it probably <laughs> right. is, um, is that a lot of this stuff comes out uh, of affirmative action in the first place, which is the only racist laws ever that I can actually see in the West. And that what was happening was they were, you know, as part of this equity drive, they were getting uh, ethnic minority students in American universities and affecting their SAT scores so that they could get into certain universities. Am I correct so far? Yes, essentially, yeah. You can get in with a much lower SAT if you are black or Hispanic in the Ivy League. Yeah. So then, 
you, these, and this is at no point am I saying that black students and Latino students and white students and Asian students are any cleverer than each other, but by manipulating these scores, you, would, you were having uh, less people that weren't capable, academically capable, of fulfilling their potential within the courses that they were on, and they were flunking out of their courses, they were dropping out of their courses, and then the universities had to go, well, why are they falling out of their courses? So then they invented... Um, courses about why that they were falling out of courses. Right, that, <laughs> right, right, okay. That's sort, of yeah, what, yeah. that's sort of what Heather MacDonald says in the diversity right. delusion. And I think it actually makes some sense. So gender studies and stuff comes out of the fact there aren't enough women in STEM. And, um, you know, critical race uh, things and, and uh, black studies and things like that come out of the fact that, you know, the, the whole white supremacist structure of university is why they can't <laughs> succeed. Right. So, yeah. Is well, it, it all, yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that chronology is pretty good about it. And it all stems from this idea that any differences between groups, particularly where historically disadvantaged groups score lower or, or are earning less, are, can only be explained by racism. Rather than, like Thomas Sowell would say, look, this isn't about genetics, but it's about culture. And that you've got to actually focus on culture. Or if you take a poor group, a country, group, group of people from Tanzania, if they showed up, from the poorest country in the world, of course they're going to be poorer in Britain than other people because that's their migration history. But mm. yeah, none of these complicating factors that actually explain uh, these differences are allowable. The only one that is allowable is that it's something about power differential. And, and that's where this sort of critical race theory comes in. And so the power differential has got, got nothing to do with race, though. It's to do with Marxism and, and, as you see, and the equity drive, which is to take, is to re- destroy the meritocracy, drag everybody down to the lowest common denominator, is that, which essentially is communism, isn't it? Right, yeah. So that's, that's kind of why I say cultural socialism. It's taking the oppressor-oppressor worldview that was applied to class and applying it to identity. It's taking the redistribution idea that was applied to the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and... and, and transposing that onto racial groups. So any disparity, you must engineer it out of the system through affirmative action, ex- discrimination, etc. So yeah, that is essentially what's occurred. But it's also the other part of this, of course, is uh, hypersensitivity. That, that wasn't there in Marxism as much, this idea that you didn't want to offend um, the oppressed group. But now that's been sort of, with a therapeutic uh, revolution in the sort of 70s, 80s, what we've now got is anything that offends the most sensitive member of one of these historically marginalized groups, so, so-called microaggressions, like saying anyone can make it in Britain, um, that then becomes a taboo. And so you actually trip over the accusation of being a racist just for saying something like that. Well, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a clever idea because ultimately it's better than doing it by force, isn't it? By actually forcing someone. So you just go, I'm offended, therefore you, I suppress your right to dissent and disagree with me because yeah. you offend me and therefore we have to maintain this myopic kind of monocultural view of, yeah. of oppression. But why race? Why race ahead of, of class when we are right. looking at a massive class disparities across the West? Well, okay, so I think you've got to go back to the beginning. Uh, I don't know if you've come across Shelby Steele. I love Shelby Steele. Okay, so the book White Guilt, I think, does a good job of explaining what happened. So he sort of says, you know, you, it used to be the case that black people deferred to white people in colonialism or in the Deep South or whatever. Uh, so the whites had the moral authority. And then after the civil rights movement, the, you know, the whites admitted that they did wrong, and suddenly the moral authority went to, the, to black Americans and away from white Americans and all of American institutions lost their moral authority. 
So they had to go out of their way to virtue signal that, that they were anti-racist by adopting affirmative action programs and other things which Steele said were never designed to actually fix any problem. They were just designed to signal. Um, and so that then, now why race? That's a good question. So I think part of the explanation is... You can't change it. Well, no, but I think if you take the left, I mean, Marxists were getting disillusioned with the white working class in the 60s. And then you had decolonization and black radicalism and the Black Panthers, and they saw this energy and they thought, actually, we need to pivot to them and the students. That's who's kind of the avant-garde of the revolution now. And so Marcuse and all these people kind of, and, uh, you know, free air, not, not free air, but I'm trying to think of um, Fanon and Jean-Paul Sartre and these people kind of moved to third world socialism and away from traditional Marxist socialism. And so there's, they're starting to move to identity. And they start with race, and then, it, and then it becomes radical feminism, and then it's sort of the LGBT movement riffing off of that. And all these so-called new social movements emerge based on the paradigm of identity politics. Uh, but I think this is really because the left was looking for a new paradigm after the Marxist one was kind of failing. And as we've entered, as the world has become more, uh, certainly as the West has become more and more equal, the the low hanging fruit are gone. So you've got to in, you've got to try and reach further up the tree for even crazier, madder stuff. So you end up with immutability and stuff yeah. like that. So you attack someone based on and judge them on immutability, which is racism. Right. That's that's what it is. And we have in this certainly in England that never gets reported by anybody. You know, real problem with white working class kids, but they, you're not allowed to discuss them. You, it's not allowed to be at all. Yeah, Straight. or the fact that they're disproportionate, well, they're underrepresented at university, right? So there'll be all this focus on the awarding gap in terms of A stars between, say, white and black or white and minority, but no attention to the entrance gap between, you know, where minorities are doing a lot better than whites. So it's very selective in terms of which gaps uh, they're interested in, because it's all about the narrative of victimhood points, and whoever's highest on that victimhood totem pole is going to get the the, the attention. Um, but yeah. Jordan Bitter made, made a good point about this anyway. He said, because it's such a badly thought through idea, wokery, and all of this intersectional mm. stuff, that if you intersect enough and enough and enough into victim groups, you end up with an individual anyway. So, <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, I guess yeah. <laughs> that's true. But they're not interested in certain kinds of victims, so someone who's on the spectrum or who has a low IQ or who is unattractive or none of those things really matter really um, so it's only certain ones that are politicized and that's mainly the social group ones around race gender and sexuality um, so you know, class is another one coming from a or, or perhaps um, coming from a family with only a single mother versus two parents all, all these things which matter hugely yeah. are not really politicized or they're not treated as of the same importance really as immutable characteristics so it, so we've we've stopped using society positively to 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 try and you know use the lessons that we've learned throughout history positively and we've just gone off on this complete tangent which is 
ripping society apart, put politics into everything. So nothing mm. is not politicised. As you say, schools, I did write to my school and I have got the lesson plans and they do teach uh, white privilege and they teach gender ideology and they do, so they're teaching 10-year-olds this stuff. Right. So, you know, but you say, I was interviewing someone this morning and they said, no, no, it's not, it's very uncommon that this happens. Yeah. And it's like, no, it's really common. And um, we need, what's so great about what you've done is you've gone, this is, here we are, here are your facts. Guys. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. I just thought it needed some sort of social scientific evidence base, right? Otherwise, it's just they picked an anecdote, I picked an anecdote. But here it is. We've got the representative sample, and it's a majority, right? It's not just a few. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think this is – and part of this is, you know, the curriculum is set by government. You know, there have been periods in – like I'm from Canada, there was a period where you had a conservative government in Ontario. They changed the curriculum so all the kids would learn about the excesses of communism, for example. I mean, you could do that. Or you could say, okay, we're, we can learn about slavery, but we're also going to learn about the Arab slave trade. We're going to learn about the, the Aztecs and yeah. what people were doing in these colonies before they were colonized. Um, that would actually give you a more rounded picture, so it wouldn't be so sort of slanted. Uh, yeah. Well, in, in my theory of another theory of my life, which I operate <laughs> on and is yet to be disproved, which is they are the exact thing they accuse you of, um, the left, the hard left anyway, is um, this idea of decolonization. We are trying to recolonize the world with wokery. That's what we're trying to do, isn't it? We're trying it's interesting, to take, yeah. We are trying to take our values or values to Qatar to go and sit there and go we're on our knees against inclusivity you little Qatari people which is really I mean I don't agree with the Qatari approach Mm. to uh, gay and lesbian people but it's not my country so I don't get to choose we're trying to colonise them with our views so essentially while they say decolonise the curriculum and decolonise this and your terrible colonial past they're just starting up a new colonial um, existence, right. aren't they? Do you think? That is interesting. I mean, I guess it depends what you, you know, I mean, this word colonial is so overused, right? I mean, the, uh, you know, one of the questions, I, I think, you know, you can always advocate for your values. I and mean, yes, I would like to see procedural liberalism in Qatar. But the bigger issue is, you know, what do you mean? Like, so I'm an academic and we've got these endless, uh, you know, initiatives to decolonize the curriculum, right? Yeah. So to introduce, you know, race and gender diversity in men. Um, but of course, the question is, well, they never actually show you how it was colonized. It was just, well, there's a lot of whites and males on there. It must mean that, therefore, it was colonized. Well, the next logical question is, is this a Judaized curriculum, and therefore we need some Jewish quotas, right? Because Jews are heavily overrepresented on, on most reading lists. And certainly on the reading list I use, they're enormously overrepresented. Uh, so what are you going to do about that? Well, is it, of course, that's uncomfortable territory for them. Yeah. But it's the same logic. So are you saying the curriculum was Judaized at some point? You know, I mean, it's crazy. And that's what Hitler was doing. He was sort of saying, oh, there's too many Jews in this field and that field. And, and you know, it's the same logic. It's exactly the yeah. same logic, isn't it? So does it, but does it have, you know, we've seen in the last couple of years how easily you can spin a culture on its head and make people do things they would never ever do before. Do you think this, this movement has a malevolent intent to it? Well, I don't even know that it's coordinated like that. It's just, I think it's more like a mind virus, like Gad said. Yeah, since, yeah. You know, it's just like COVID and it spreads and then you, you get it and you become a spreader and there are some super spreaders and then eventually they'll take over an institution or two and make their way towards government as in Scotland or Canada. Um, so I think it's more that than it is any nefarious plot to, to 
take over the institute, march through the institute. I don't think there was actually any overt plot that was followed. But it's just one of these things, like if you think that the highest moral virtue is to be super, super, super sensitive to uh, historically marginalized race, gender, and sexual identity groups, and that, then that trumps everything, including scientific reason and free speech. And, then, and that's quite compelling. You then drag in the stories, you know, slavery, colonialism, uh, genocide, etc., Holocaust. It's ongoing. This yeah. is, all this stuff is ongoing. It so, is. So, so what, it, it, it is just pure virtue signaling. It's not real. Because you can, what are there, 40, 50 million slaves living today? Yes, yeah, yeah. You've got um, internment camps for Uyghur Muslims in China. You've got it all. You've got LeBron James who won't criticise anything to do with China, but he's woke. I'm I'm confused as to what the, where this thing is, when this thing, I agree with you that there's an incompetence to it. It's It's not totally... Klaus Schwab trying right, to turn okay. the world into right. a thing because they're, they're not smart enough most of the time, these, right. these people. But um, where's it heading? Well, where it's heading, I'm afraid, is that this idea that, you know, oh, you have people say, oh, wokeness is peak because we've got editorial in the New York Times and The Economist and Harper's and, okay, nothing to worry about. And one of the things I say in my report is just look at the age split on these questions. Um, you know, and, and for example, more people under age 25 would like to see, uh, you know, would like the vice chancellor of Sussex University not to have defended Kathleen Stock free speech rights than supported the VC backing her. Or more, you know, it's roughly 50-50 between those who say J.K. Rowling should be dropped by her publisher or should not be dropped by her publisher amongst this age group, whereas the 50 plus, it's like 85 to 5 against the woke position. So the generational split is massive, especially amongst the left. So the older left is actually pretty tolerant. Yeah. And, you know, they'd be pretty in favor of Stock being allowed to speak and Rowling being allowed to write. And because they, they believe, that the, the traditional left believed in that the fact that the working man or the working woman who had a ball, to be honest, right. needed free speech to be able to get their point across. That would have been a traditional left-wing position, but it's gone. Yeah, yeah so, it, but the, so it's really on the left that you see this big age gap. The young left is really intolerant, really absolutist, and in fact, there's even surveys in the U.S. that go back to the 70s where you can track this intolerance amongst sort of students. Uh, and it's the same age. So 18-year-old in 1970, 1990, 2010, you can see that same individual is becoming a lot less tolerant of certain kinds of speech. Not, not other kinds of speech, but certainly anything around the identity topics. Much more absolutist, much less relativist. Um, yeah. that's, and that's dangerous. Yeah, so there, there isn't that belief in the Enlightenment. The dominance of truth and freedom is not there as anywhere near as much. Now, I will say there is a very big split on gender lines in this younger generation. So male, female amongst that younger group on these woke questions, it can be as much as 50 points apart. So there's a big gender aspect to this. What, so the m- men are more... Uh, a lot less woke. Uh, young men are a lot less woke than young women. Oh, well, that's a shame, yeah. being, a yeah. straight, being a straight bloke. <laughs> oh, no. oh, no. So forget about it, Lawrence. Oh, no. Is it going to what, so why are women more susceptible, would you say, to, to it? Is it? Because yeah. women are naturally more... Yeah, what, uh, what's that other great Jordan Peterson thing? Trait... Um, you always talk about personality traits. Agreeable? Agreeable. Agreeable, yeah. That's the one. 
Yeah, I think that's part of it. But I think the other thing is, you know, in 1970, women, uh, female students were more conservative than male students, right? And so it's, it's, they'll fall in behind whatever the orthodox dominant value system is. And so they're just falling behind what is the dominant value system in the world they live in. But why are they falling? Why why are they why are they more woke when woke is anti-female? Well, no, well, not only are they more woke, but they are, for example, women are more in favor of trans people gaining access to women's shelters than they are. men are. They are. So they are actually more pro-trans than men in the survey data because they've been taught to be caring, and they're the ones who sort of uphold whatever the community norms are. And those are the community norms right now. They also don't yeah. know what men are like, then, <laughs> either. Because I'm really sorry. Any man who wants to hang around a woman's changing room or go to the loo in a woman's bathroom, <laughs> we've all met a bloke like that, haven't we? And that's not to criticise your, you know, a, mm. a, absolute transgender people who do exist, but we've seen an explosion in this, and then you see what's happened in the American universities with that and the high school where that, the, where was it? Mm. The, the rape in the in the bathroom. Oh, yes, that, yeah. Where was that? In Virginia, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> Forgive um, me, my cold is killing me. Oh, um, no. <clears throat> so, where do we need to go? Where do we need to go now in this conversation? I'm well, right. well, I'm I'm kind of quite a big proponent of of government intervention. Okay, and, right. And I, mean, no, and I, I know that you know some libertarians don't like that, but my view on it is, you you can't be a libertarian. You know, the libertarian on this issue just means you're handing the woke the victory, right? Because they control the institutions, um, They're quite universities, w- organizations, publishing, movies, whatever. Um, so all the institutions are controlled, right? You, the only institution that the anti-woke side has a chance of controlling is elected government, some of the time or most of the time. And so they've got to use that leverage. Or not at the moment. Or I not mean, at the moment. We've had right. a palace coup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Britain, no. But yeah. in the U.S. in certain states like Florida, yes. Um, and so you need to actually have the government come in and issue very, very detailed guidance to schools, uh, to the civil service. It's like this is political. You have to be politically impartial. So that's already in the law in Britain. Schools cannot indoctrinate. They have to be politically neutral, but they're not. No. So the, the, what you need to do is two things. One is you need an enforcement mechanism. Uh, two, you need to, to write the guidance that says, actually, this is what political impartiality is. Anti-racism is not, you know, anti-racism is a common value, but it excludes systemic racism. That's got to be written down so that whenever teachers drag this out, right now what they're doing is saying, oh, we're just teaching anti-racism, which is a consensus value. It's not political. But the problem is they're they're smuggling in this critical race theory into the definition of, yeah, we'd all agree not to teach uh, racial slurs, but... The, the stuff that we would think of as racism, but what they're thinking of is, well, no, racism also means teaching that Britain is a systemically racist country. That's, that's just part of our anti-racism. So you've actually got to drill down and specify that that is political and not consensual. And then once they break that, you've got them. But right now you don't have them because they'll just say, oh, no, no, we're just teaching anti-racism. But they're clever with anti-racism because the problem with anti-racism is that there's an opposite to it, which is racist. Whereas there is no opposite to not racist, is there? So if you if you can condemn racism, I mean, I'm, I imagine that's part of every school's policy. But to be actively anti-racist is to find racism everywhere and try and remove it. And if you don't remove it, you are a racist. 
that's the, my problem with anti-racism. There's a, I'm going to a talk next week at my son's school about anti-racism. Oh, and how do, I talk, how, do I talk, <laughs> how do I talk to my ch- child about race? These are rich white liberals, all of them. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's just crazy. Uh, it all seems to come out of that same, it, that, that same thing. Um, so government intervention would be, in education, would be a, we're not going to teach this, we're not going to teach, we're going to teach that racism in its Oxford English Dictionary right. version. Which or is the just, old, uh, maybe, maybe yeah. a few years back Oxford English Dictionary, yeah. Definitely not the Merriam-Webster version. Yes. But it's to teach that discriminating against someone based on their ethnicity or skin colour is racism. Yeah, that's yeah. one thing. I mean, ideally you would also have guidance on there to try and decenter the conversation away from just race, sex, gender to other things. Other kinds of, you know, uh, disability, IQ, or uh, maybe not IQ, that's tricky, but... Well, I think IQ, weirdly, is probably a bit systemically racist. Because uh, I look at IQ tests, and I go, I wouldn't uh, understand, I don't kind of understand this based on, or or it's not racist, it's something else. But it feels like it is very much a kind of Western construct and there should be other ways of testing someone's intelligence other than an IQ test you know well yeah you you might be right and I'm not an expert and it's not yeah. something I've looked at but no what I meant was more you know within races you've got a real spread some people are really smart some people are not uh, genetically yeah you know, that's a huge advantage I mean if you want to talk about privileges you know if you're going Having to talk about brain, privileges race is maybe like that you know the impact maybe is like that compared to you know ge- genetic Intelligence. I mean, yeah. and so if we are going to talk about privileges, let's just have a scientifically informed conversation about which ones really matter the most, including um, on, on a very broad scale. Yeah, or saying. if you come from a you know an intact family, or you know whatever that it is, all of these things are much more important to your material success. Let's say, uh, but I just think the you know governments can also shape school curriculum a lot more. You know, so there've been times in the past, as as mentioned in the Canadian case or elsewhere, where the governments can really say, hey, no, you're going to teach about Mao and you're going to teach about the Cultural Revolution and Soviet Gulag and all this sort of stuff alongside the Nazis so that people understand that utopian beliefs um, lead to horrible things the way, same way racist beliefs lead to horrible things. And, and we need to have both. Um, and also we need to teach about the pride, you know, good things and pride as well because we've got a country and we need, want people to pay tax. You want people to have a sense of hope and optimism because it yeah. leads to better outcomes. You know, carrots are better than sticks in life and telling your kids that they're all a bunch of racist, nasty little racists who are virus on the planet making the whole thing turn <laughs> right. into a big fiery ball of hell and that they need to be cold and miserable is not a way of furthering a society in any way whatsoever. Um, we are doing this thing via, called bad education at the mm. moment because there's no standardised PSHE curriculum or RSE curriculum in the UK. You alluded to this earlier when you said right. you can't sometimes get um, the, the resources from the school for, say, what they're teaching in Black History Month or what they teach in PSHE. So our view is that there needs to be a standardised PSHE curriculum at the very least which is not allowed to be Googled by whichever teacher in which uh, in LGBTQ history remembers right. us. And, right. and then it's based more around a sense of civic responsibility teaching. Do you know what I mean? Well, what yeah. I was taught when I was a kid, like, if there is an old lady, help her across the road. Not if there is an old white lady, spit right. at her. Right, right. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah. It, do you think that would work? I think that's a great idea. 
um, uh, you know, alongside curriculum transparency, so, you know, having to make your materials and not allowing third-party contractors, you know, say radical gender or, or race groups in uh, who are, aren't willing to have their materials shared because right now they're claiming, oh, no, those are pro- proprietary. We don't, we don't want our competitors to see them, so you can't release them. That's their argument now. So you have to say, well, if you're not willing to have them released to the public, then you can't con- we can't contract with you. So I think there are a couple of other things that you could do. But, yeah, what you, and, and I'd add to what you said, you know, just teaching about what does the law say on speech, you know, that you have speech rights and that they are protected. You know, that uh, in the U.S. there have been studies that uh, kids who've been taught about the First Amendment are much more pro-free speech when they come into university than those who never were taught about the First Amendment. So having to teach kids what, what that liberal tradition is in the law is, I think, pretty important as part of the civics uh, curriculum. It's crucial because yeah. without the free expression, they will. They don't have a chance in hell. But we're going to have these blossoming uh, graduate groups coming out of universities who, are, as you say, are getting more and more and more and more intolerant. And they're going to find their way into the institutions, aren't they? Because yeah. they're not going to be finding their way into private business, particularly. I mean, they will, but yes. then, but much more, they're going to find their employ in the state, aren't they? And they're going to change the state from within. While we're all going, we don't like this. Right. Well, so, they're also changing large corporations. I mean, I yeah, think it's, it's both. Um, so I'm not sure the private sector is a real haven. Maybe small businesses, but uh, I mean, in the we, well, they're killing off small businesses. So you know, oh, all, right. all you need okay. to do is take one. I mean, the, the COVID killed it. They did their best to kill off small businesses, and now the latest budget of the autumn statement is even worse for the small businesses. Oh, yeah, okay. There's almost no point in being self-employed, as far as I can gather. Again, caveat: I don't know much about money. But it's the death of the individual as well, isn't it? The death of, the, uh, of free speech and the death of the individual and, and the fact that we're going to have to deal with these, these bastards. Well, this is it. This, this idea that people who say, oh, well, it's, it's peak because George Floyd moment is over. I mean, this is so naive because, you know, these younger people, as they become the median voter, right, these are people who believe that if a speaker comes in and a says something I disagree with, they shouldn't be allowed onto campus. I mean, some of those surveys, uh, you know, in the U.S., for example, if you, you know, something between 70 and 85 percent, if someone comes in and says abortion should be outlawed, you know, I don't believe in abortion, that that person should not be allowed onto campus. Now, you can disagree with that, and I would disagree with that, but they don't seem to be making a distinction between disagreeing with someone's beliefs or even being offended uh, and allowing a person to speak, to have a debate. I mean, that there just seems to be very little space between those two ideas. So I think that needs to be taught to them, that this is what the law says, this is our tradition. And right now, I don't think it's being taught. Yeah, it's not being taught. And um, why is it not being taught? It's not being taught because, it, again, they are the exact thing that they accuse you of. You know, you talk about the death of the Enlightenment, the death of truth. They they know the truth exactly what the truth is. The truth is you shut up, <laughs> right. isn't it? Yeah. That's well, it's, it's if you, yeah. you're not allowed, and if you if you on abortion, I mean, classic. The midterms yeah. were classic for this because they knew that all the mail-in ballots were going to come in in the in the period. Uh, there's no no accident. They released the findings of the what the Bob's Jobs case, whatever it's called, the Roe versus well, anyway, the thing. That oh yeah, yeah. Sure. Roe versus Wade, and then they called it. They're you know you, they're, they're going to make abortion illegal, but they didn't make abortion illegal. Yeah. They r- returned it to the states, which is you would have imagined was more democratic rather than less democratic. But um, everyone got uh, uh, they're hot under the collar on abortion. It's um, it's mad. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, some states did probably take it too far, and I think. But well, so I, did some others. Yeah, and so you know, did some you've others. Got an yeah, equal right. and opposite reaction. If you're going to yeah. have postpartum abortion yeah. in some states, then right. you're going to have some states that are going to have a heartbeat right. built. <laughs> That's the nature yeah. of the thing. If you're not going to have a, but yeah. my worry is they're going to bring it to Europe, and we're suddenly going to start having conversations about abortion, which we've never had really. In, I mean, they right. had it in Ireland. But in England yeah. and most of Europe has taken a pretty reasonable position mm. on, on abortion, yeah. as far as I, I'm concerned. I don't agree with them. But but, but I think this, this point about – I think what it is with free speech and the truth is, is it's not that they don't believe at all in truth and free speech. It's just that those values are secondary to the sacred values. Right. Right. So the sacred values are Kindness. equal outcomes for uh, identity groups plus hypersensitivity to these identities. And that's tops. So if you say something that's true but offends, then you can't say it. Because the top value is you can't offend or you've violated the sacred. Um, and, and so that, that is the value system that they believe in. Um, so they're, they're right when they say, oh, no, I believe in free speech, whatever. But it just goes under the bus. It's like at university. In all of these universities, they have all these grand statements defending, oh, yes, right to academic freedom, all these sorts of things. But, of course, if academics, researchers say something that activists don't like, those principles are simply subsumed under the kind of care harm kind of cultural socialist principles which dominate because those are the dominant values in the hierarchy that's so upside down though yeah because the, you can't you can't work out you can't talk about identity groups you can't talk about anything else unless you have the free speech that tops that it has to top yeah. that in order to have a reasoned discussion on ethnic disparities or anything else if you can't have two disagreeing voices, it's the same as, again, sorry to drag it back yeah, to yeah. COVID, but there was only one narrative allowed. And look what happened. It was a complete disaster. And yeah. whenever there's only one narrative allowed, it's a complete disaster. So right, right, yeah. Now, I'm, I'm sort of, I have a slightly different view on COVID than you do, but I still think it's got to be debated, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. It has to be an open debate. And, yeah. and this idea that this will lead to some great harm, well... You know, we accept a certain level. It's like with a speed limit. We do accept that the speed limit isn't going to be zero miles per hour. There are going to be some people killed, but we accept that as a price to have the freedom and, and, and to drive around at a certain speed. So we have to set that speed at whatever level. But I think the COVID thing is, I, I think this is a, something that's in the past now, and I also think it's not as central to the woke religious belief system because the woke belief system is really about these identity groups as sacred totems that you, you cannot offend even the most sensitive member imaginable of these groups or you've committed a sin. Why did they pick such bad martyrs then? <laughs> well, because I think that, you know, these groups are politically somewhat organized, right? I mean, they're not going to pick people who are, you know, uh, you know, mentally challenged because those people are never going to be an organized political group. <coughs> Whereas, but, I, but I mean someone like Jason Blake or, or uh, George Floyd. These are not, right. you know, if, right. if you if you wanted to make a really good martyr for Black Lives Matter, you'd have David Dawn, the mm. guy who was shot in the defending his shop from right. rioters. You yeah. know, he was a police veteran, worked in the police force for 35 years, was killed protecting his shop. That's a martyr, and if we're talking about immutable skin, immutability, he's a black-skinned man, and he was killed. He's a martyr. Why are you turning a guy who's... Uh, digitally raped his uh, ex-wife, stolen his kids and has a knife in the car. Why is Joe Biden and Kamala Harris going down to visit this guy? Why are the martyrs so poor? I don't understand. Well, yeah, because it doesn't actually matter the conduct of the individual. It's they're a symbol. Uh, right. And that's what Shelby Steele talks about. He, I mean, he goes back to those early Watts 
1960s riots that actually wound up burning down black neighborhoods and impoverishing black neighborhoods and black, you know, ruining black life chances in very large measure. And his argument is, well, actually, these riots are, are very symbolic. They're a performance. And one, so they rarely go into the white, wealthy neighborhoods. In fact, they tend to remain in these black neighborhoods and they're damaging black businesses. And one of the reasons, according to Steele, is they're trying to win over well, you know, well-off white liberals in these urban areas to actually, to their cause. So they're not going to go and attack their neighborhoods. I mean, this is one of his points. So yeah, it's very much a kind of engineered spectacle, performance. Um, so it doesn't really matter if the individual is, is no saint. Yeah. Uh, they're useful for the movement. That's a mad. Yeah. And why, and why is every, why is the media on board with it? And why is the government on board with it? And why, when the, when the country are, isn't? As you agree. Why, yeah. why, why, why? Well, I think it's, it's you know, getting back to Steele's argument that, that the, they're all trying to signal, virtue signal moral authority in this new system where anti-racism is the highest virtue. And now, now the question then that be, it begs is how did that become the case? Mm. Uh, and I think that involves a kind of shift also in moral authority from right to left. So the left actually, the white left was very keen on the white guilt narrative because it gives not only, it's not that it gave minority people moral authority, it's that it gave the left moral authority. So I think that that's where they are also invested in the white guilt narrative. Um, and so yeah, and then that then spreads and every organization wants to look good on this sort of what Steele would call dissociation, we'd call virtue signaling. They all want to signal how virtuous they are to each other, to the public, even the police force where, or the military, where yeah. the average rank and file per officer is not interested, but all it takes is this. Pu- but they don't know the arguments. I mean, those those average people wouldn't know how to. If someone said, "Oh, you don't like this anti-racism initiative, you must be a racist," they wouldn't know how to answer back. Well, it doesn't and that's work. Part it, of the problem. It's, it's not worked in. I mean, there is a peak woke uh, happening in the American military because uh, I mean, I think I can't remember the exact stats, but. It's something like uh, white working-class Americans die in twice the numbers to their demographic in war. Right. And now their recruitment is is down 45% because they're tired of being told that they are racist and then being asked to go and die for their country. So it's... Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's... I, it's it, this stuff is going to have to crumble or get worse. Well, well, I also should say it's got a bunch of down, downstream effects. So even those people who think, oh, culture war is just a little battle on campus somewhere, uh, which it isn't. It's actually the foundations of our civilization. But if you think about these downstream effects, right, so how are we going to have a discussion about crime, about child safeguarding, about homelessness, health... Parents, single parents. Uh, you know, all of these issues, immigration, all of these issues you can't really talk about openly, and so you're not going to arrive at the right solution. You can't really help minorities advance because you don't, can't diagnose what's leading them not to advance, right? So that, all of these things are actually affected by this f- narrowing of the Overton window caused by the rise of wokery. So it's not just something that, um, you know, elites like to talk about. This has actually got a lot of real-world Effect, and then we could talk about China and Russia and all these countries that exploit this division in the West, which has been caused by um, by the advance of cultural socialism, and and so they're exploiting those divisions, um, which is actually helping, you know, it's keeping the Democrats in these countries from from having a winning hand because they'll say, oh, you want to bring trans into Russia or into China, you know, you're an idiot. Well, it, it's a tough argument to make. 
Well, the Chinese also send 400,000 of their students into Confucius Institutes every year, don't they, in, in the US universities. So it's, um, they, they've, they've been watching us very carefully and where our weak points are. Is it, 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 has China taken over the, 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 as the world's most powerful superpower? <laughs> um, no, well, I, I think they've got a certain amount of power. I mean, I'm not... Culturally. Culturally, I don't think so. I mean, it's it's so they are exploiting Western weakness to prevent reform at home uh, and to shoot down, you know, liberal democracy. But I think that in terms of their power, culturally, I think it's limited because they're not an expansionist power the same way the Soviet Union were. I mean, they're content to be Chinese in China mm. rather than make us all into Chinese. I mean, despite the Confucius Institutes. So I don't think they're actually going to have the soft power, you know, basically a very few friends in their own region, most of the other countries hate them. I don't think they have a lot of soft cultural power, no, but no. certainly they have military power, yeah. And um, what about your, your Canadian, what about yeah. uh, Trudeau? Come on. Yeah, I think Canada's sort of in the worst place of, of any of the countries in, in many ways because there's, there's very little resistance to this woke juggernaut. So you may be aware of something called the residential schools in Canada, which is all about this, this claim that there were these mass graves uh, found at a, at a sort of school in Western Canada. That led to, you know, 40 Catholic churches being burned, statues being toppled, and Trudeau lowering the Canadian flag to half-mast. Now, the reality is there was not a single body found. There were no mass graves. Not only that, I mean, this whole narrative about Genocide is a complete fraud. I mean, if you actually dig into the evidence of people, I mean, these, these residential schools were, you know, they were not a good idea. But actually, most Native kids did not attend them. Number one, there were no Native kids torn from their parents and made to attend them. Number, I mean, all of these things. I mean, if we are going to have a, a conversation about truth and evidence, all of that's been brushed under the carpet by. The media, the Trudeau government, and they've just Feelings. run with this thing because it's useful. Again, it's this moral authority that they can attach themselves to, and it's kind of a moral authority of the left against the right. So it's very useful. And um, it's, it's yeah. a moral authority, I suppose. In the olden days, this stuff was kept in check by religion um, yeah. because the moral authority was with God, and you were the sinner, and you had to spend your life trying to be like you know, live like Jesus lived and right. you know, all of those sorts of things. So that's kind of gone. We killed God now. So we've replaced it with a, with a sort of illusion of what that those values meant, which is this, you know, totally prioritizing all of these things that don't do any good at all. So we're not, we're not loving thy that's neighbor. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is I mean, I think it's interesting. It is very religious, this idea that yeah. the, the, these are sacred symbols. So African-Americans or Native Canadians are, are somehow sacred and cannot be criticized. Um, that is part of the... I think there's this desire to venerate and to have rituals and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but now whether it's... I don't, I'm not sure it's caused by the... necessarily by the decline of religion, which has been at a weak point in, in quite a few societies like Britain for quite some time. Um, but, but there is a, a certain vacuum there that can be filled, absolutely. With this sort of yeah, moral yeah. supremacy... Yeah, yeah. Um, so where can people read the report? It's all online. Um, if you just Google policy exchange uh, culture wars, you'll probably find it. Or policy exchange in my name, you'll find it. 
Um, and so, yeah, so those, I mean, I'm, I'm intending to, to get this into a book form, but uh, not just these reports, but, but just to have this talk about cultural socialism, because I think it needs a name. Um, part of the problem is you've got like five different, six different names for this thing. Yeah, um, uh, even woke is getting a bit difficult yeah. to understand because I'm starting to notice that sort of right-leaning libertarians are also quite woke in a right-wing way, which I find. Oh, okay. Oh, really? Which I find kind of spooky as well. Oh, okay. Um, but that's that's <laughs> for another day. Yeah. And you're on social media. Yep, on Twitter. Um, What's your handle? It's at epkaufm. There you go. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it's been great, Lawrence. Thanks Thank a lot. Thank you for coming in. All right. Thanks for having See me. See you guys. Welcome to today's talk, Wednesday the 9th of November. Now, there's a debate going on in the UK Parliament about the safety of COVID vaccinations. Now, I'm unable to comment on uh, a lot of the detail here because of my own um, ignorance on this matter. But thankfully, in the UK, we live in a parliamentary democracy and members of Parliament are completely free to voice their opinions and everything I'm going to play is already on YouTube uh, on the parliamentary channel. So some interesting views are expressed and I would encourage you to listen to this video uh, if you can. Uh, some people might think that the risk-benefit analysis has now changed. Now I'm going to start off with a very brief clip from Mr Elliot uh, Colburn Member of Parliament, and let's just see what he has to say. This only lasts about a minute, so so please stick, please stick with it. There's some important stuff coming up here. Six zero two one seven one, relating to the safety of the COVID nineteen vaccines. Uh, on behalf of the petitions committee, I will read out the prayer of this petition, which states that there has been a significant increase in heart attacks and related health issues since the rollout of the COVID nineteen vaccines. This needs immediate and full scientific investigation to establish if there's any possible link with the COVID-19 vaccination rollout. It is the duty of government to ensure that the prescribed medical interventions of its response to coronavirus are safe. We believe that the recent and increasing volume of data relating to cardiovascular problems since the COVID-19 vaccine rollout began is enough to warrant a full public inquiry. This petition has amassed over 107,000 signatures, including signatories from my own car and a Wallington constituency. And I'd like to first begin by putting on record my gratitude to the petitions committee clerks and the team behind the scenes for organising today's debate, but also particularly the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, or MHRA, who met with me recently to brief me on their vaccine safety surveillance strategy. Now, Sir Roger, throughout the course of my speech, I'll be pointing out why I do not think that the government should be launching a public inquiry into vaccine safety. I think it would be a waste of taxpayers' money, and I do not think it is necessary for reasons that I will go through throughout the course of my speech. But just to give a bit of background, Sir Roger, the COVID-19 vaccine has been at the centre of... OK, so that, that was Mr. Elliot... Uh, that was Mr. Elliot Colburn... A member of Parliament. Now, he's been fully briefed by the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, 
an official government body that gives advice on these things. Now, I do seem to remember a video a couple of days ago where we did note that the uh, MHRA is uh, 86% funded by the pharmaceutical industry and other vested, uh, I mean, in, and other uh, industries. Um, so that's not going to influence them at all, of course. We're not saying that. But that is where he gets his information from. And, and the full uh, line of his argument is there on the, uh, the government uh, channel. Now I'm going to go and listen to Mr Danny Kruger, Member of Parliament for uh, Devices. And Mr Kruger uh, gives information that I personally am, uh, uh, personally am um, ignorant of. So it's good of him to, uh, to give it. Uh, because I can't remember. So um, let's listen to uh, to Mr. Danny Kruger now. This goes on for a few minutes. We might chat about it in the way th- in the min- in the part way through. But l- 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 just give him the time because he says things that I can't I can't um, remember. So over to uh, Mr. Uh, Danny uh, Danny Kruger now. I do regret his 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 response to my honourable friend member for. Christchurch, I think, who, who, who raised the point about uh, medical expertise, which cast some doubt on the vaccines. Um, and, and my friend chose to smear all opponents of the vaccine programme. Um, there, of course, are lunatics out there who are making absurd and outrageous claims, but I do suggest that there are many reasonable and respectable people who have anxieties about the vaccine programme, and, uh, and particularly, of course, in their own cases, those of themselves and their families who have suffered as a result of the programme. Um, and I, I, I'm a member of the, the all-party parliamentary group. My friend, member for Christchurch chairs, looking at vaccine injuries. And we met, I think there was the first meeting of the APPG last week in committee room uh, in Portcullis House. And we met there. It was only, a, I'm afraid, a tiny handful of colleagues. But well over 100 members of the public attended, which isn't the usual uh, story for, a, uh, for an APPG. And I felt somewhat ashamed on behalf of Parliament. This was the first time that those members of the public families of the bereaved, themselves injured uh, citizens, had had the opportunity to be in a room with, with members of this House. And I'm very pleased that we are now having this debate, and I'm particularly pleased to, that, that, that we have the opportunity for members of the public to hear from the Minister about, about this topic. Um, and I should say to members of the public watching that we have here a very good Minister who is genuinely committed to, uh, to, to health and to public health, uh, and has shown a real interest in, in this topic and in the effect of, of COVID policy since before when she was a backbench MP. And I would say that the UK as a whole, and while many questions need to be answered about, about our COVID response, is by no means the worst offender. We're not Canada or New Zealand or China, places where they think they can exterminate COVID by depriving the population of the most basic civil liberties. Um, but we still do have, I'm afraid, much to ask questions to ask ourselves and even much to be ashamed of. I'm particularly ashamed, and I put it on record in hindsight, of my own vote to dismiss the care workers uh, who didn't want to take the vaccine. Uh, and I very much hope that the 40,000 care workers who lost their jobs can be reinstated and indeed compensated. Uh, now, a group of us, including, I think, the, the minister, held out against compulsory vaccination of health workers when that was proposed by the government last winter. And uh, and that resistance, ter- I think, turned the tide to a degree on government policy. Uh, and, we, and we emerged from, the, from, from lockdowns quicker than we might have otherwise. And yet we still have this policy of mass vaccination. And I, want to, I, I do want to query, query this on behalf of, of constituents who have written to me. 
And my, my query starts with this simple point. In October uh, 2020, when the vaccine was getting ready for a rollout, Kate Bingham, the head of the vaccines agency, said this, there's going to be no vaccination of people under 18. It's an adult-only vaccine for people over 50, yeah. focusing on health workers and care home workers and the vulnerable. Now, why was it extended to the whole population? I don't think we've ever had a completely satisfactory answer to that to that question. Uh, and I raise it because my concern is that in extending the vaccination program, it, it became an operation in public persuasion, an operation in which dissent is unhelpful or even immoral, justifying suppression, even vilification of those who raise concerns. I have to give way. I thank my honourable friend for giving way. Would he also question, unlike any other vaccine, um, the vaccine was actually given to people who'd got natural immunity because they'd actually contracted provably contracted the virus, and so they would have had natural Why were those people vaccinated? My honourable friend is absolutely right. The best vaccine against COVID is COVID, and, uh, and many people were indeed naturally immune, and, and I think there are questions to be asked about the effects of vaccination on the, immunity, on the immune system. Um, so, now I do understand why. My, my honourable friend, the for Carl Sheldon and Wonford, made, made, made a very you know, understandable point about the importance of, uh, 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 of resisting misinformation. And certainly, there, as, I, as I mentioned, many crazy theories out there which we need to not, not, not give credence to. Um, if we're talking about a programme of vaccinating the population, it is important that the public is persuaded to do what the government wants them to do. And I understand why the government should have a public health information campaign along those lines. But it, it is an essential principle of medical ethics that people need to be able to give their informed consent before any treatment. And I do worry about how we can say that consent was fully informed in all cases. Throughout there has been, not I wouldn't say deliberate, but there has been some misinformation, possibly accidental, in favour of the vaccine. We can tell this with hindsight. Um, perhaps the most egregious, and my, the, the doctor that my honourable friend mentioned earlier presented on this to the, uh, to the APBG last week, Dr Malhotra, the, the claim that the vaccine is 95% effective. But what that means is simply the relative risk, not the actual absolute risk, uh, reduction in risk to an individual. The absolute risk reduction is really less than 1%. There was a widespread claim that the vaccine stops transmission, so people should take the jab to protect other people. We were all told that. We all believed that for many months. Last month, we heard from Pfizer that, that, Pfizer, that their vaccine was never tested to see whether it would stop transmission. Uh, and yet we had the notorious claim by, by Professor Chris Whitty that even though the vaccine brought no benefit to children, children should be vaccinated to protect wider society. Now, I'm all for thinking about society, not the individual, uh, Sir Roger, but that, again, it feels to me a profound break with medical ethics. And a lot of people are asking what the vaccine does to children and young people. And Dr Whitty is right that the benefit to healthy children seems to be essentially nil. Uh, and yet there are genuine questions to be asked. And I do not verify these questions. I merely ask them on behalf of my constituents. How do we explain the increase in the rates of myocarditis, the increase in heart attacks and the excess deaths among young people? And indeed, in the general population, it is plausible, not definitive, but plausible, uh, that the vaccine is responsible for more harms than we know about. And I mentioned in my intervention earlier uh, that we know from the yellow card scheme that up to 1 in 200 people vaccinated report an adverse reaction. And that is in itself bad enough. But we also know uh, that yellow card reports, uh, the, the, the adverse effects are significantly underreported through the yellow card scheme. Based on the MHRA's own research, there may be as many as 10 times more serious adverse reactions, serious ones, not just any ones. There may be 
10 times more serious adverse reactions than the yellow card system shows. Happy to give way. Does he agree with me that it's, not, um, it's, it's perhaps important for the minister to explain how those people who ha- say they've experienced damage from the vaccine can have themselves heard, not just via the yellow card scheme, not just via the module in the public or existing public inquiry, and not just an application for vaccine damage compensation, that there needs to be more meaningful ways in which people can engage um, with, with their experiences of, of damage. I'm very grateful to the Honourable Lady, and I, I, and I absolutely agree. And I think that, that, that today is a very important moment for, for the Minister to hear on, from our members here on behalf of residents. And I would encourage a far greater engagement with, uh, with uh, citizens who have themselves suffered from uh, vaccine damage or even lost loved ones through it. Now, uh, I mentioned these, these rather terrifying uh, facts, and there may be innocent explanations for them, and I, I very much hope they are. If these are conspiracy theories, we need them to be comprehensively and courteously debunked. So I have four questions for the Minister to close, Sir Roger. First, will she review the vaccination of children? We know that children have strong naturally acquired immunity and that the chance of death from COVID for a healthy child is is one in two million. So I believe that we should follow other countries like Denmark and stop vaccinating children altogether. But I invite the minister to consider reviewing that aspect of the policy. Second, will she make representations in government and with Baroness Hallett that the terms of reference for her inquiry should be broadened to explicitly include the efficacy and safety of the vaccines? And I hear what my honourable friend says is absolutely right, that the inquiry does include reference to the, uh, to the vaccination programme and its effects. And he may well be right that that is sufficient and that the review will properly consider the, just the, the topics that we're discussing today. I hope that that is the case. I, I, but I think that needs to be made more explicit. And so I'd invite the Minister to comment. Happy to give way. I actually wrote to Baroness Hallett asking her to ensure that it was specifically in the terms of reference that it should cover the issue of safety of vaccines and the impact of vaccines. And as a result of not just my representations, but representations from others, the terms of reference were amended to make it quite clear that vaccines and the impact of vaccines and the potential damage of vaccines is included within the terms of reference. For that clarification, it concerns me that it took his representations to even get the, the vaccine, yeah. the, the, the effect of the vaccines considered by the inquiry. And I, I suggest we need to go further and talk about efficacy and safety, not just the impact. So I think we need to be quite explicit about what we want answers to. These, these issues need to be directly covered. Um, now, this inquiry, I think, uh, I think we do need the public inquiry to consider this because of the compromised nature of medical reg- regulation in our country. And I mentioned earlier that the MHRA is funded by the pharmaceutical companies who produce the drugs and vaccines that it regulates. And this might be, there might be some universe in which this makes sense, but I don't think this is that universe. I don't think it's right. Um, and third, we need to do more, a lot more for the injured and bereaved. As my, the Honourable Lady mentioned, I agree with all of my, uh, my friend from Christchurch's uh, recommendations, and we'll hear from him shortly about what needs to be done to raise the threshold for compensation for the injured and the speed of payouts. And I also agree with him that we need clinics for people with adverse reactions just as we do for people with long COVID. And finally, following this, we need to change the power and balance. I am sorry on behalf of Parliament that this is the first proper debate we've had on this subject. I regret that victims and families have had to struggle so hard to get the engagement of the system. I hope the Minister will agree to meet with some of the people who are here today and, and, other, and other representatives of, 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 of families affected by, by the vaccines. Um, with a proper, a proper exchange of information and ideas. And I hope that she will request that Dame June Rain of the MHRA meets with them as well, rather than, I'm afraid to say, 
ignoring letters for months. And I want to hope that, uh, end by hoping that with the new government that takes over this week, the current minister herself has only just been recently appointed, will stay in post and that we can start a new chapter uh, in the story of COVID. No more remote power telling people what to do. Let's put truth and justice back into our public life and restore trust in the experts we rely on. Thank you, Sir Roger. We should be all right. We should be all right for time. But, uh, okay. Um, thanks for bearing with us on that. Um, Danny Kruger there was saying quite a few things that I can't. Uh, I can't remember. So um, questions that need answered. Mr. Kruger thinks changes. Uh, in opinion with ongoing evidence. I'm delighted to see that Mr. Kruger has changed his opinion with ongoing evidence. Um, when we get new uh, evidence, of course, we should amend our views with that evidence. Learning is, is a process of evolution. And evolution just means change. And we need to follow the evidence wherever it leads. October 2020, the original plan was only to vaccinate older people to protect them. That seems to have changed, Mr Kruger observes. Um, now, Mr Kruger thinks uh, the best vaccine against COVID is COVID. That's a direct quote from uh, Mr Kruger. Uh, just his view, of course, but he thinks the best vaccine against COVID is COVID. Natural immunity. And of course, we know from this channel, if you look back at the videos I did pre-2020, I did a whole series of about 20 videos on immunity, the way that the body develops natural immunity when it's exposed to infection. And an amazing system it is. Informed consent and medical ethics, who can argue with that? It's motherhood and apple pie, isn't it? And yet, has it always been done, is a question that Mr Kruger is raising. Uh, he mentioned uh, Dr Asim Malhotra, who pointed out the difference between relative risk and absolute risk, which was really quite profound. And um, Dr Malhotra, of course, was kind enough to come on this channel uh, last week. Questions for Professor Dr Whitty, uh, Chief Medical Officer Still. Uh, knighted uh, for his services to uh, services during the um, pandemic. Uh, it seems we've gone a bit quiet now, so it'd be good to get him up front and answering questions. In fact, I think he should answer questions from anyone, but that's just my view. Uh, Mr Kruger feels that some of these facts are rather terrifying. Again, just his view, but he does say they're facts and some are rather terrifying. And of course, he wants to get rid of the conspiracy theories, he wants to debunk that which is not true, promote that which is true. So, um, pretty uh, pr pretty profound uh, speech there from uh, from Mr Danny Kruger, Member of Parliament for Devizes, and um, I know that's gone on a bit, but he said a lot of things there that I can't, uh, I couldn't have remembered to say. So, um, thank you for uh, Mr Kruger's input there, and of course, thank you for watching. Welcome to today's talk, Saturday the 5th of November. 
Now, today we're going to be hearing directly from uh, committees of the European Parliament and the UK Parliament, where official questions are being asked, at least in the United Kingdom Parliament. Just before we go on to look at those parliaments, let's look at the excess deaths in the United Kingdom, which remain high. This is the latest data here. The week up to the 21st of October, there was 13,463 deaths. People do die, but that's 15.7% above the average we would expect for the week of the year. That's 1,822 excess deaths, despite COVID deaths only being 5.5% of all deaths. And indeed, some of those, of course, would be with COVID, not from COVID. This is the graph we're familiar with looking at, and we do see the excess deaths above the black line here remain high and have been for some weeks. Now, the British Heart Foundation have actually published some data here on the cause of these deaths. So this is actually quite interesting. We see there's more deaths. So anything on this side is increased deaths. Anything on this side is reduced deaths. So what we're seeing here is more deaths from ischemic heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, other circulatory diseases and heart failure. So these are all heart-related deaths. We're seeing slightly fewer deaths from cancer, slightly fewer deaths from acute respiratory infection and chronic lower respiratory disease. Now, of course, in, in, in times of COVID, this is not what we would expect, but we're seeing less deaths from acute respiratory infections and we're seeing less deaths from what we used to call COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, now called a chronic lower respiratory disease, but it's the same thing, basically, and the acute exacerbations that occur as a result of that. Um, so they're down. Deaths from dementia are actually down as well. Now, to be fair, in, in dementia, um, people get that when they're older, usually, not always, but usually. So other people may have died before they had time to get dementia in this circumstance. That is feasible, but less deaths recorded from dementia. Anyway, more from urinary, more from liver disease, and quite a lot more through uh, diabetes. Slightly fewer through Parkinson's disease. Now, um, that data is reported on this website here from the... Uh, British Heart Foundation, which is a heart uh, advocacy and research group. And there's that data there, which uh, shows fairly clearly what is, uh, what is going on in terms of increased cardiac deaths, which is the same picture we've just looked at. Now, moving on, we'll be showing some data here. This is from this. We're going to be looking at data in a minute from the official government YouTube channel. So this is completely official government data. So we are not saying anything here that's not officially recorded by the UK government. Now, let's just, before we look at the UK data, let's just listen to Mr. Uh, Mr. Christian Terraz, who's concerned about the increased mortality in now, Europe. Raise all across Europe. The excess mortality rate in the month of July 20, according to Eurostat, in the month of July, the excess mortality rate all across European Union went up 16% more than the average of 2016 and 2019. Now, if you look on the map here, this is released by the Eurostat. It's not from us. So before we look at the UK Parliament, let's just see if Mr. Terraz is making that up. So if we look at the uh, the graphic that Mr. Terraz had there, 
this is that graphic here, and it is indeed from Eurostat, and I've given the reference for it. Monthly excess mortality in August 2022. Now, you'll notice that the, uh, the European data is uh, quite out of date compared to the UK data, but it's the latest we've got. I did check on the website just in the past few hours, but we do see that, uh, okay, there's no data there for uh, Spain, and I think that's uh, Romania, is it? Anyway, um, there's no data there. There's that Bulgaria. Sorry about that. Anyway, uh, we, we, but we see in countries like Finland, Norway, Sweden, um, Germany, uh, Ireland, uh, Iceland, Greece, uh, that the numbers of deaths are significantly higher, and even in other countries here. Uh, France there, for example, we, we see Poland there, we, we see that the numbers are higher than we would expect. So it's absolutely right. And we're looking at about an increase in uh, 16%. So we're actually seeing that this is a, not just a UK phenomena. This is kind of uh, everywhere. Now, I want to give this next few minutes over to, to Mr. A Andrew Bridgen, a member of the, uh, the UK Parliament. And I think he speaks for himself. Now, we stress, absolutely have to stress, this is from the official UK Parliament website. And, of course, the views are Mr Bridgen's, but let's listen to him now. So over to Mr Bridgen. It only lasts about five or six minutes. Do, do bear with it. Well worth listening to. Could I ask Mrs. Mr Bridgen and Mrs Elfitt to confine their remarks to uh, six minutes, please? Mr Bridgen. Uh, thank you, uh, Sir Roger. It's a pleasure to serve under your chairmanship. I'll try and curtail my... Uh, remarks to six minutes. However, this is a hugely important debate, overdue, uh, and what we do know is that those people who've questioned the efficacy or safety of the vaccines have generally been cut, uh, cut down, uh, cancelled, and that's why uh, this is so important. Um, I don't claim to be any sort of expert, but my degree a long time ago was in genetics, behaviour and biochemistry, and science works by challenge and what we do know is that these the science behind these vaccines has not been allowed to challenge um, a study um, in the journal of american medical associations published included 7806 children aged five or younger who were followed for an average of 91.4 days after their first pfizer vaccination the study shows that one in 500 children under five years of age received a pfizer mRNA messenger ribonucleic acid COVID vaccine were hospitalized with a vaccine injury and one in 200 had symptoms ongoing for weeks or months afterwards. This is what the study has found. Um, would the minister uh, in response uh, outline what the government's current policy on, on vaccination and boosters is and also outline what our current policy for the vaccination of, of children is? So it, half a percent of the children, so 40 out of the 7,806, um, had symptoms that were still ongoing, uh, so that it was of unknown significance at the end of the trial. That was a, a, a two to four month follow-up period. So half a percent of the children had an adverse uh, effect that lasted for weeks or months. To two cases, uh, the, the symptoms were uh, confirmed to have lasted longer uh, than 90 days. G uh, given this evidence, um, Perhaps the Minister can explain to us why we're vaccinating healthy children who are at minimal risk from COVID. And surely that, this is in breach of the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. We're not in a situation where we can ask young people to risk their lives to protect older people. That's, in a civilised society, that, that can't be the way it works, 
Sir, Sir Roger at all. According to the Independent, uh, in April this year, more than 1,200 claims have been made to the Vaccine Damages Payment Scheme, uh, which entitles successful applicants, as my right honourable friend, for, the member for Christchurch, pointed out, for £120,000 if a causal link between vaccination and severe reaction culminating in injury or death is proven. Does the Minister recognise these figures? Um, Sarah Moore, a lawyer who represents 95 families seeking claims, said her clients felt silenced and ignored, adding that they cannot speak about vaccine harm uh, or linked injuries without being accused of being anti-vax. What's the Minister's view on victims uh, being labelled as, as anti-vaxxers? Um, the Department of Health and Social Care commissioned research through the National Institute of Health Research. 1.6 million has been allocated for a programme to understand the rare condition of blood clotting with low platelets following vaccination for COVID-19. Does the Minister think this is sufficient and is there sufficient breadth of uh, investigation considering all the things we're finding out about these vaccines? Uh, where's the cost-benefit analysis by age group uh, for the vaccines given the risks that they carry? Um, especially as, as the pharma companies are now admitting that the vaccine, uh, vaccination does not impact on transmission. And did the government at the time of the mandating vaccines for care workers and NHS workers know uh, that the, uh, the vaccines had not been tested to whether they actually prevented transmission at the time the mandates were, were brought in? Uh, the Florida Department of Health. Uh, Mr. Uh, Sir Roger, conducted an analysis through self-controlled case series, which is a technique originally developed to evaluate vaccine safety. This analysis found that uh, there is an 84% increase in the relative incidence of cardiac-related death, death amongst males 18 to 39 within 28 days following a messenger ribonucleic acid vaccination. And with a high level of global immunity to COVID-19, the benefit of vaccination is likely outweighed by this abnormally high risk of cardiac-related death amongst men in this age group. The recommendation now in Florida is that they do not have vaccination of any male under the age of, of 40. Studying the safety and efficacy of any medications, including vaccines, is an important component of public health. That's the Surgeon General, Dr. Joseph Ladarpo, Far less attention has been paid to safety and the concerns of many individuals have been dismissed. And these are important findings uh, that should be communicated to all Floridians. I would suggest, uh, Sir Roger, these are important findings that should be transmitted to everyone who's had a vaccine or is contemplating having, having a booster. I also had the, the pleasure of meeting Dr. Azim Malhotra last week at the APPG launch, and um, he made a very, very strong case that up to 90% of adverse vaccine reactions are actually not even being reported. And finally, I wish I had longer to speak, uh, finally, the excess deaths we're suffering at the moment in this country, across Europe and in the Americas. What analysis is the government making of these excess deaths? But even a, even a casual glance at the data shows that there's a very strong correlation between vaccine uptake and the level of excess deaths being found in that, in that country. Surely we must have an investigation. These are tens of thousands of people who are dying more than we're expected. It's really, really important. And I think if we don't get this right, no one's going to believe we're going to lose trust in politicians and we're going to lose trust in our, in our medicine and our medical system. Thank you very much. Natalie Elphick. Order. Okay, I think we'll leave that there. Uh, 
quite a distressing listen, really, to be quite honest. Um, science works by challenge. I think it goes that way around. No, it doesn't. It goes the other way around. It goes upside down, not downside up. It's how science progresses. A dialectic progression. Science works by challenge. And by the way, isn't it good to have members of parliament who are scientists by background? Also there, a bit of politics, really. Who knew what when? Now, of course, we're not saying that uh, correlation means causality. We, we're not saying that. In fact, on this channel, we're not saying anything at all about adverse effects of uh, vaccination. We're saying nothing about that. This is purely the opinion of Mr. Andrew Bridgen, Member of Parliament and uh, scientist by background. But what a point there about loss of trust, really. That you know, I've had tens of thousands of comments on the channel, and the loss of trust is profound. The cynicism uh, from young people is profound. Now, this was on the UK Parliament official site. Now, I stress this is the UK Parliament official site. So, and this is their YouTube channel, which is up and running. Check it out for yourself. And that was the Eurostat there. So there you go. Uh, I make no comment whatsoever. Um, we've merely listened to members of the a member of the European Parliament and a member of the UK Parliament. That is all we're saying. Thank you for watching. Now, I am delighted to introduce my next guest. Uh, Dr. John Campbell is a retired nurse teacher, uh, an A&E nurse. Uh, he's shot to internet fame with his video analyses of COVID data. Let's have a quick look. Well, you're most welcome to today's talk, Wednesday, the 2nd of November. Now, this is a video I was hoping not to have to make, but the excess deaths are still going up, especially in the United Kingdom where we're going to be looking at today. But it's not just the UK, it's quite a few other countries as well. Now, as you can see, John Campbell, you don't have flashy videos, you don't have flashy graphics. <laughs> You're in your back room. You literally use an overhead projector and a pencil as per, like, university lecture days. Is that part of the charm of your appeal? You've had more than half a billion views of your videos in total. Yeah. M morning, Bev. Thanks for having me. Oh, very, much. very lovely to see you. <laughs> yeah, it's a fairly basic setup. I try and keep the technology as minimal as possible so people can focus on the content. So it's all about the content. And there's a real demand, there's a real thirst for evidence-based analysis mm. focused on what I would call the, the intelligent lay viewer. That just means someone who's not necessarily a medical professional themselves, but has got an interest, is able to analyse things, is able to question, and wants to know what the evidence is. Don't always get it right, but that's what we try and do. So you started this, am I right in saying January 2020? I actually started just doing YouTube. That. Well, I actually started making videos in the old VHS days that you <laughs> might just about remember. <laughs> I do. You know, big chunky tapes, and then we went on to DVDs, and then we went on to YouTube. And I that was to teach? Yes, that was... Basically, I taught nurses. For, so I'm a nurse. I taught nurses for 27 years. I yeah. became an academic because nursing went into academia uh, in the 1990s. And um, we, we developed a, a, a whole package, really. I did all the anatomy and physiology, which I normally teach, and all the disease processes. All the things that uh, junior uh, nurses and doctors all need to learn. And we 
built up a, a modest, modest following with that. Right. But then COVID came, obviously. The first COVID video was the 26th of January 2020. Okay. And then the views increased quite dramatically after that. So we went from about 20,000 views a day and now... We're on quite a lot now. She started 20,000 views a day. Pre-COVID, it was about 20,000 views a day. Now, I have a theory as to why you became so popular during that period of time, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you, you probably do agree with me. We were thirsty yeah. for factual, data-driven information. It felt like there was so much obfuscation. We didn't know who to trust. And there are you, John, in your back bedroom with your overhead projector, <laughs> literally looking at A4 pieces of paper yeah. and explaining to us what they meant. That was yeah. it, wasn't it? There was an official narrative and basically there was no no, no disagreement no about that official at all. Na- narrative yeah. and we got what the bbc told us and we were supposed to sit there and say thank you very much politicians thank you very much chief medical officer thank you very much bbc we're now trot and do trot off and do what you say but there's a lot of basic principles of i mean i'm not an infectious diseases specialist but there's a lot of infectious diseases principles mm. a lot of basic virology principles a lot of basic medical principles and you can apply these to the situation and when you applied those to the situation, it was clear there was kind of gaps in, yeah. in what was being said. Uh, initially, there was a lot of trust. And if I, I regret one thing, uh, it was taking the, those supposed to be an authority, the, the, the authorising bodies, the, the marketing bodies, the, the, the senior people, taking those somewhat at face value, whereas now... I analyse or try to analyse everything they say in context of underpinning physiology and underpinning principles and in terms of the data, the evidence. Because right at the beginning, I found you because somebody must have sent me a video. Was, was there one particular one that went very vi- viral early on? I think it might have been infection fatality rates. Could, could you were be. good on infection fa- And I remember thinking, because at the beginning you were very pro-mask, you were very pro-hand sanitizer. Like you say, you, you trusted, right? You trust the system, you trust the medical companies, you trust the chief medical officers. And then you went on this amazing journey, John, and watching you look at this and say, hang on, this isn't right. That, that, that this, isn't, this doesn't adhere to our usual scientific principles mm. a lot of the time, wasn't it? I think we have to go with where the data is. So initially the data was in favour of those things. And we've got to bear in mind, we were in a different situation in 2020, 2021. We had the original Wuhan strain, we had the Alpha strain, we had the Delta strain, and they are dangerous strains. Yeah. People do die. COVID is a real disease. The virus exists. It infects people and it can cause severe illness and death in some people. But now the evidence has changed. We know more. Omicron, really, I think Omicron is, is the best blessing we've ever had. You know, I interviewed doctors in Africa, and we've got some contacts yes. there. And one of the African doctors said to me, John, you've got to realise Omicron is the vaccine that we failed to produce. Now, he was talking about the African situation. Yeah. But that's so important, this build-up of natural immunity. We've got this amazing immune system. And we're in a milieu of viruses and bacteria now, but thankfully, you're looking fairly healthy. I'm feeling okay at the moment. I'm a bit hungover. <laughs> no. I'm not really. No, I know you were at a conference last night. I know you were at a conference last night. But we, we, we live with this all the time. And, and really, COVID is now in a very endemic phase. Mm. And we have to look, even Boris Johnson said we have to live with it. Yeah. And, and I agree with him on that particular point. You've come up against the censors. Yeah. And, and actually, watching you 
talk about the first time, I think it was when you did a video on ivermectin and you'd looked at a lot of the ivermectin data and ivermectin being a treatment that was arguably actively suppressed and early at home treatment that was mm. having great effects in, like you say, African countries, mm. particularly in some American doctors. Yeah. And I remember watching your ivermectin video go out and I remember thinking, let's just see what happens here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you came on, you said, I'm not, you're never going to believe it. I literally looked at the data and, and you got a warning. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the very first ivermectin video I did was with the great American physician, Dr. Pierre Corey. Yeah. Now, he testified before Senate on yeah. steroids, and the video I did on that is still up. And, of course, we know steroids save thousands, probably a million lives in, in the pandemic. And then he, he testified before Senate, sa same, same hearing, same setup on ivermectin. His YouTube video on that hearing got to 10 million views before it was banned. My video with him was put on about half a million views and then it was banned. So that was the first video I had down with one of the leading physicians in the United States who wasn't allowed to express a medical opinion. And neither were you. That no. was the irony. It was not opinion. You were literally looking no. at numbers and survival no. rates when you treat people at home. That, that's right. So basically, I still don't know how efficacious ivermectin is. I've got some data mm. from Africa that I can't talk about publicly, at least on... Mm. on social media that seems to show it improves oxygen concentrations. I've got other evidence from studies, for example, McMaster's University in Canada that seems to show it's a waste of time. But because we've got this kind of publication bias at the moment, so certain things are published and they get into the public domain and the public, popular press can report on those and you can put them on social media. But other evidence, for example, my contacts in South Africa, they produce evidence, but they can't get it published. Yeah. So we have this publication bias. It's all to do with this narrative. There's a narrative which is acceptable and there's a narrative which is not acceptable. Now, I want to be able to take arguments for and against. Absolutely. I want to be able to analyse that and I want to come to my own conclusions, thank you very much. And I want my peer, I want peer reviews mm -hmm. and I want the best scientists and the best doctors we have. And we have some brilliant scientists and doctors in this country. Mm. We were talking to a, a Seymour Hotra last night, yeah. brilliant cardiologist. I want to know his view. Yeah. I want to know what he thinks and I want to know what he thinks based on the evidence, not based on a narrative. And yet within this out. and yet within this kind of this this psychosis that, that we were all encouraged to mm. undergo, um, all of that open and honest debates disappeared. Has that been one of the big lessons for you from the last couple of years? It, for me, it definitely is. That, that's one of them, that we're basically not allowed counter-argument to the narrative. That's one of the big ones. And the other big thing that I really feel, and it's, it's a major problem, it's a national and international problem, it's the breach of trust. Yeah. Who do we trust? I used to trust. When the pandemic first started, we had a prime minister, we had a chief medical officer and the chief scientific officer. And my wife said, well, that's what you want, isn't it? The prime minister and the chief scientific officer and the chief medical officer. And basically now I feel let down. Yeah. It's as simple as that. I've been let down by them. I feel I've been let down by the regulatory authorities. They've got knighthoods now, which is all very nice mm -hmm. for them. But where are they now? Why aren't they talking about what's going on now? They seem to have dropped out of the public domain Altogether, And I think it was also the echo chamber around number 10. Mm. that you, we, we had doctors yeah. like the, and the Great Barrington Declaration. Yeah. We had other doctors trying to break through to communicate with those mm. in power, to say there may be two sides to this mm. story. Why do you think they couldn't penetrate that sort of cabal of knowledge and information? Yeah, there was cer certainly... There was certainly an accepted narrative, wasn't there? And anything outside of that narrative really didn't get through. Now, why that is, we really don't know. I think 
the point you make there about an echo chamber is a good one. Mm. Um, people said this and it's self-reinforcing and maybe it's the type of government that was around at the time. I'm no insight into that. But when you get onto more, I wouldn't say conspiratorial, but more, more covert, more, more occult possible reasons, there is vested interest. There yeah. is massive financial vested interest. And someone like me is unable to know whether that's a big factor or not. Millions of people believe it's a factor, mm. but we don't actually know and we can't debate it openly. Mm. So we know that various groupings have made billions of pounds, yeah. but other groupings have made millions. We know that individuals have made tens of thousands. We know the way that contracts awarded were questionable. There's a lot of money involved. And, and more you, questions than answers still. I think so. And just one question, John. Mm. How famous are you now? Because you, you're that fascinating famous that there are some people <laughs> who would just fall over when you walk in the room and there's lots um, of people who have no idea who you are. I, I don't think I'm very famous, Pepper. You're make, quite famous, just aren't you, Just YouTube though? videos. <laughs> I, I met your wife last night and yeah. she did say, well, it's a bit, it's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? She said, I don't, <laughs> yeah. didn't really expect any of this yeah. to happen. But, it, it, um, it'll all fade fairly soon. Oh, I'm sure it won't. Um, keep up the amazing work because you talk about trust well you are one of the very few incredibly well-respected impartial and trusted experts when it comes to what we're still facing uh, dr john campbell there you can find him on youtube hello and welcome to this talk now so many people have asked me to do a video where i include vitamin d and vitamin k and especially vitamin K2. So that's what this is about. Now, if you haven't got time to watch it, I'll try and give you a bit of a bottom line, although it's very difficult on this kind of video because it's a bit complicated, really. But um, if you've been watching this channel, you'll be in no doubt about the potential benefits of vitamin D and the fact that in the cold, overcast northern latitudes, we're often deficient of it because the vast majority of it comes from the sunshine. So uh, vitamin D, that's what we're talking about. We'll just look at a couple of guidelines on that as well because there's some interesting things on that. But then the other question is, should we be taking vitamin K2 with it? The answer to this seems to be that vitamin K2 is associated with quite a few beneficial effects. So it should certainly be part of a healthy diet. But taking moderate amounts of vitamin D, as I do, I'm currently taking 4,000 units a day, actually. The evidence is not suggesting that it is necessary for me to take vitamin K2 with my three or 4,000 international units of vitamin D that I take a day over the winter. But it may be beneficial for other things. There's a more of a sort of a grey area with higher levels of vitamin D. But of course, you wouldn't be taking high levels of vitamin D. You'd only be self-medicating on lower doses. You'd only be taking high levels if you're supervised by your own doctor, in which case he would be advising you and supervising you. And of course, it goes without saying that you never take medical advice from me. You always go to your own doctor. Now, having got that out of the way, let's move swiftly on. So here, here we see um, uh, um, COVID-19 rapid guideline to vitamin D from the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence. Now, this obviously is excellent because it's got excellence in the title. So uh, called NICE, of course. And um, basically, it's still saying... So I read this with some excitement. I thought, oh, they've got their act together. <laughs> Published on the 17th of December 2020. But basically, it's saying, uh, same old, same old. It's talking about the 400 units uh, a day and slightly different amounts for different age groups and things. So do peruse that uh, with disappointment, as I did. Um, so, um, 
l- l- latest on vitamin D, National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, that, that one. Basically, basically, it's saying consider 400 international units, 10 micrograms per day. Very low dose, so consider taking that, and it gives a few provisos. But that's basically, it's still saying take the same amount. But then I looked at uh, uh, there's various NHS sites. This one happens to be from Mid Essex. Uh, check it out for yourself. It's in the on the web. It's publicly available. And let's look at that. Now this one, slightly more interesting. It's actually written for uh, prescribers and, and doctors and people like that primarily. Um, but it's talking about vitamin D deficiency and prescription guidelines. Um, now, um, it talks there about lifestyle. You can read this for yourself. But here we have these flow charts. Now, these flow charts are really popular in, in modern healthcare, and I must say they are remarkably useful um, because you can kind of follow them through without knowing too much about the subject and, and get to a good result. So, um, patients with high risk factors that may increase risk of vitamin D deficiency or a patient at a higher risk of having low vitamin D status at risk group, right? So if they're in that group, basically they're saying here, does the patient have symptoms indicative of rickets, osteomalacia, sort of bone thinning, thinning or symptomatic low blood calcium levels? Uh, or symptoms of rickets, including uh, tetany, leg bowing, knock knees, anterior bowing of the thigh bone of the femur, painful wrist swelling, softening of the skull, spinal curvature, bones. I mean, I could go on, but, but, but basically it's, um, it's focusing on, on rickets, which we've known about for about 100 years now. No mention of reduced immunity or autoimmunity or heart disease or cancer of the colon or cancer of the prostate or depression or unexplained aches or pains or multiple sclerosis or the other correlates that may well be associated with vitamin D. None of that. Um, They're just focusing on those things there. And then it does go on to make recommendations and it says here if the vitamin D uh, this is the uh, this is the serum vitamin D, the vitamin D in the blood. If it's less than 30 nanomoles per litre, it gives a treatment option here of oral capsules, 40,000 units, uh, cholecalciferol weekly for seven weeks. And there's various other flow charts with what to do. And, and the other ones work out at giving, if, if the levels are higher, basically it works out at giving the, the 400 units one uh, that we know about. So... Um, Routine screening of vitamin D levels and prescribing of vitamin D is not advised advisable according to this, so it's not too, it's not too worried about it as a routine. Um, let me give you my view on this. Um, I think everyone in the country uh, should have their vitamin D levels uh, measured as a measure of some urgency, actually, I think, and, and their, their vitamin D levels should be titrated. According, according to those according to those levels that's what I, that's what I would uh, that's what I would think but but that's not what this protocol is saying uh, both clinical symptoms and risk factors must be present before measuring vitamin D levels in other words this appears to be actually discouraging GPS from checking vitamin D levels so um, if I was the teacher marking this I think I'd probably give that across and I'd probably give that across having said that people reading these guidelines have to do it they don't have any choice because these are the official guidelines and if a doctor was in contravention of the guidelines then potentially that's not a good situation for him or her Um, so they're the guidelines Uh, as yet there is no clear evidence 
to prove the risk from non-symptomatic vitamin D deficiency. Okay, proves a big word, but um, I'm not sure I would agree with that. I think there's evidence that suggests to the contrary. In academic essays, we always tell students to be tentative. It could be suggested that. From this, it could be reasonably inferred. A possible implication of this is, because until we have definitive answers, we don't have definitive answers, and I'm afraid we don't have answers that, that, that definitive. I believe with vitamin D, which is this accumulation of evidence. Anyway, um, adults, uh, adults, if their vitamin D is less than 30 nanomoles per litre, which is 12 nanograms per mil, oral capsules are 40,000 units, that's uh, 40,000 units, that's 1,000 micrograms or 1 milligram of cholecalciferol, and that's the way they spell it, that's vitamin D3. They spell it in a strange way, I wouldn't have, I would have spelt it with an H, but there you go. Um, weekly for seven weeks it is, what is what they're saying. Very similar to um, colleagues in India um, whose doctors have been prescribing them uh, 60,000 units a week for six weeks to top them up. Uh, difference being in India, they've been doing that without measuring the blood levels. But I agree measuring the blood levels is good, so, so that makes sense if it's very low. But to me, these are really remarkably low levels, less than 30 nanomoles per litre or 12 nanograms per mil, very low levels. Um, I would be very uncomfortable with patients or me, me at that level. Um, so it's talking about giving these doses. Um, in contrast, the NICE guidelines are saying 2,800 units per week. So the treatment dose there is 40,000 units. The NICE guidelines for maintenance is 2,800, which many will think is very low. Um, now, vitamin D levels of 30 to 50, that's 12 to 20 nanograms per mil. Basically, it's saying buy your own, which is quite reasonable, 400 units per day, to say buy your own. I mean, we, we, we did this on A&E all, all the time. If a patient needed um, ibuprofen and paracetamol, so just go and take paracetamol and ibuprofen, you might tell them the best way to take it, but, but um, you wouldn't need to give it.